Oregon's one mission to bring Major League Baseball to Oregon. Powered by the Portland Gear Store and Guardian Games, this is the Diamonds and Roses podcast. And without further ado, your hosts, Ben and David. Welcome back yet again for another episode of the Diamonds and Roses podcast. I am your host, Ben. I'm going a little bit solo today, but I do have a guest on our uh, episode, and this is uh, for our part three, uh, final part, with uh, Larry Colton. So, Larry, welcome, and thank you for taking Dave's place, and thank you for continuing uh, this three-part interview with us here at the Diamonds Rose Podcast. it seems like you were just here yesterday, or <laughs> last hour. Anyway. Yeah, we've been here for yeah. a couple yeah, hours recording. So. Looking forward to this one. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, as uh, probably for not the listeners, but you know, we like to to break this up. You know, get to go to the bathroom, yeah. get a drink, you know, do whatever, get some exercise. Yeah, yeah. but and, th- I, and I can only talk about myself for oh, you know, twenty hours at a time. You or know, write so a book I, about I, yeah, 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 a couple different a book, times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I start talking, nobody listens. I said, "Well, screw them. I'm going to write a book about me." <laughs> <laughs> then they'll have to then, buy it. Yeah, well, they won't buy it, but anyway, <laughs> but that's okay. So uh, we're going to go ahead. We're going to pick up um, where we left off and that you're coming off. You're, you're, you're in the hospital. You're, you, you wake up. You're coming in off your, your shoulder injury that you just sustained. And let, let's, you know, let's kind of talk about where, where you're at at that point. You know, are we going are we to rehab? We're going to go back, play? What, what's your thought? Well, I just figured this is a temporary derailment. You know, I'm hurt. I'll be on a disabled list for a couple months or whatever it would be, and I'll be right back where I was. And so uh, there, I did not anticipate that what was going to, how it was actually going to turn out. Rehab back then, there was no arthroscopic surgery or there, there I was in a sling. That was mm-hmm. it. Uh, I mean, and there was no rehab. I mean, I, I just sat around, didn't do anything. And it was completely different back then. And then uh, so they sent me down. Actually, I, I had a thing in my contract where if I stayed in the big leagues 90 days, I got a $8,000 bonus. Mm-hmm. And they sent me down on when I had 88 days and so yeah. they saved $8,000. They sent me back to Coast Lake and I just sat around there for a while. And then I tried to come back and I couldn't, I threw right-handed, but it was my left shoulder that had been separated, but I couldn't lift it. So when I went to bat, I just stood there. I couldn't swing a bat. Uh, and on the mound, I was, I couldn't lift my arm my left arm. So if a line drive was going to come back on me, I wasn't going to be able to get my hand yeah. up because I couldn't lift my shoulder. And so I started throwing and ducking because <laughs> and I turned my back so my back would face the mound after I threw it uh-huh. because I should have never played is what it was. It was, but you know, you're young, you're invincible and you think you're coming back. And plus I'd been in the big league. So I wanted to get back to the big leagues and I wasn't mm-hmm. going to get back by sitting out, you know, so I was in a big rush to start playing again. And that was a big mistake. So and I what started, was the time frame? I mean, you know, I mean, where well, I, the injury I start, happened? I, the, the injury happened June 4th. And so I started playing probably the middle of August. Okay. So, you yeah. Did. So uh, six weeks. I was, uh, no, it was more than that. It was more like, Eight weeks, probably. But that's that's rushing it back. I mean, that's yeah, like it might not even have been recovery. that long. But uh, no, it had to be in July because I remember pitching in San Diego. It was during the nineteen sixty eight. It was during the Democratic uh, convention in Chicago when things were going nuts and people were rioting and they're going that. And I remember standing on the mountain seeing they had a big message aboard it because we were playing a new stadium and mm-hmm. they put in there that. Uh, Hubert Humphrey had won the nomination, and I wanted Eugene McCarthy or something. I can't remember. And I was all pissed off standing out there in the mountain thinking about politics when I should have been <laughs> thinking about how to get this next guy. Off. But I wasn't throwing well at all, and my I, my record that year was not good. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I pitched like five games or something, six games. I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, and plus, my batting average, huh? My career batting average is probably two sixty or something like that, but I, I never got a hit mm-hmm. because I couldn't swing the bat. I just stood there. I would try to scare him like I was going to bunt yeah. or something. So, so in the winter of '69, you you know, go through the rest of the season. The winter of '69, 
you um, you're traded from the Phillies to the Cubs, right? But you were that player to be named later. I was a player to be named later in a deal. The Phillies sent Johnny Callison, who was an all-star right fielder, to the Cubs for uh, uh, two, uh, a pitcher named Dick Selma and an mm-hmm. outfielder named Oscar Gamble. Oscar Gamble was one of the first players to have an afro in the big leagues. He'd be, yeah. He had big hair. <laughs> and so, but I was, you know, player to be named later. So you, so you get traded uh, from the Phillies. And was it? Were you in Eugene at the time? Well, they they had you. Uh, San Diego had become a big league team, so the friend the the Triple A team for the Phillies at the time, which was San Diego, was moved to Eugene. Eugene went from an A league team to a Triple A team in 1969. Okay, and so I I played the whole season in 1969 in Eugene, mm-hmm. and did I, I don't know I was about. So you went, uh, I think, eleven and nine. I mean, this is what the record said: you eleven and nine with a four point one eight ERA. Yeah, which is respectable, but it wasn't. I wasn't as good. I was not as good. So then you go from you you stay on the West Coast. You go from Eugene. You go up to Tacoma. Yeah, I got traded with the Cubs. I went to spring training with with the big league Cubs with Ernie Banks and all those guys. But I never. I pitched like one inning or two innings in spring training. They sent me to Tacoma, and I started off six. I actually started in the bullpen for the first time, and and then they moved me into the rotate. And I was six and one, and leading the league in the ERA. And, and there was a big article uh, that the Cubs were going to call me up, and we were playing a game in Hawaii against Hawaiian Islanders, and I pitched against an ex-big leaguer named Juan Pizarro. Mm-hmm. And they won the game like three to two, and Juan Pizarro hit two home runs off me. And the next day, the Cubs bought Juan Pizarro's contract, mm-hmm. and that was pretty much the end of my career. Yeah, it says you lost three to two in that game. And then you again the next day the Cubs go out to buy out your contract. No, well, they bought out. They bought Juan Pizarro, and I stayed the rest of the year. But the, that team in Tacoma was the worst team in Pacific Coast League mm-hmm. history. I was the best hitter on the team. They once I the the Dodgers would uh, Spokane with Tommy Lasorda was their manager. He mm-hmm. intentionally walked me to get to the leadoff hitter. <laughs> you know, yeah. When you when you intentionally walk a pitcher, that might be a that's another might be a record. So uh so the day after you're you're released from the Cubs your contract's no longer I wasn't uh, I wasn't released. I, no, you just they just bought you out and you're gone. No. No I, I was still wrong. under contract. They still wanted me to come back the next year, but I didn't want to come back. Okay, okay. So oh well that's the I, I yeah. didn't know that I was yeah. the research the, I actually I actually they you were, did. I could have kept going, but uh, I I was ready to move in other directions, and I'd moved to Portland at this point. I'd gotten mm-hmm. a divorce, and I'd moved to Portland, and I got accepted into a teacher training program uh, through John Adams High School yeah. in Northeast Portland, and I just decided I wanted to do baseball. Felt at that point in my life, it felt irrelevant, mm-hmm. and uh, because. You know, you have to remember the end of the 60s were so chaotic. And I don't know if it was my Berkeley background or whatever mm-hmm. it was that I just wanted to do something more meaningful with my life than playing triple-A baseball. Yeah. And uh, so I went into teaching. Okay, so then this is 1970. 70. You, 70, yeah. And you go into teaching. You're, 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 you're teaching for several years. And, and what were you, you know, for the listeners, what were you teaching at that time? I was teaching at John Adams High School. I was teaching language arts, mostly uh, English, writing. Um, and uh, I was part of a team teaching program. We would team teach stuff. I didn't, uh, so uh, it was very, it was an experimental school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I, I thought this was my passion, my calling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I was struggling financially and I'd remarried and had another child and, and, uh, uh, you know, one summer I painted houses during the summer. Yep. And that was, I hated that. <laughs> you know, it was, 
Wait a second. I got a college degree from Berkeley, and I played in the big leagues. Yeah. Nothing wrong with painting houses, but it wasn't my particular gig. Exactly. And, <laughs> and you bring this up in the, the documentary, The Battered Bastards yeah. of Baseball, and yeah. you were sick of wanting to paint houses. Well, I was going to have to paint houses again. And then I read an article in the Oregonian that the Portland Mavericks were holding a tryout. Mm-hmm. And they'd been here one year before or two years before, and they were the lowest level of A-ball. It was a rookie league. Mm-hmm. That, that, uh, so it's first-year players. The, uh, each team in that league was allowed to have one player who had played higher than A-league ball. And so they had a tryout and at Civic Stadium, and I hadn't picked up a ball in, for five years. And I pitched three innings. I think I struck out eight guys mm-hmm. because I'd snuck up on my arm. And after I walked off the mound, the um, owner, Bing Russell, legendary Bing Russell, came out of the stands and he went up to me. And I had, I looked like Charlie Manson. I had long hair and a beard. And he said, Wow, you can really pitch, but I bet you're a drug addict. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you counted smoking dope, I was, yeah, I was, but but I didn't do real hard drugs, and it would have been legal nowadays, mm-hmm. but, but uh, so I eventually made the team. Let me ask you this question. Let's, let's take a step yeah. back. When you, when you, you, you go out there on the mound to try out, you're out, you're out there throwing the ball, you know, how did, what did that feel like to you? Did you, did it feel like, okay, Maybe I can do this. Yeah. Or, or how was your arm feeling? At it was feel was feeling good. It felt a lot better than it did the last couple of years I played. I'd rested. I hadn't done anything, mm-hmm. and so I, I, yeah, I was throwing pretty hard. What and kind of shape were you in at that? I point? was pretty good. I, I was good shape. I mean, I was running a lot at the time, and, mm-hmm. and wasn't in baseball shape, but I, I played basketball, and, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, so I, my weight was probably less than it was when I played in the big leagues. So, so in, in the film. They had, uh, this was in 1975, yeah. in the film they had a little, like you, they talked about a little blurt, little bleep of you riding on a bike, but you said that, that, that bleep came from another documentary that they did on oh, the Blazers. Oh yeah, I don't were... know why they put that in. That was a, a documentary, it was called Fast Break. Uh, first book I wrote, I had written a story for the Oregonian about the Blazers when they were on the way to the World Championship. And I had followed the. I've been traveling with the Blazers, and 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 I knew Bill Walton personally. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, at right a month after they won the championship, uh, Bill and I went on a bicycle ride down the Oregon coast, mm-hmm. and it was followed by a film crew. I mean, we were with the film crew was with us, and he was on his fancy, you know, uh, uh, bike. And he was in great shape. He just won the world championship. And mm-hmm. I had a three-speed swim varsity with a baby seat on the back. And so we're going up and down the hills of Highway 101. And I'm getting blown off the highway by trucks and everything. But he's way ahead of me. I can't keep up with him. Yeah. But uh, for some reason, the film crew of uh, that did the Mavericks documentary found that documentary on the, bla- on the Blazers, mm-hmm. which I'm in it, and stole a little shot of me riding my bicycle which made no sense in the context of the maverick movie but it did i mean that shot you know up ahead was bill walton but yeah he wasn't in the frame that they showed in the movie <laughs> i don't know so people go what's that why is that guy there yeah i, re- I remember you talking about it. it's kind of funny i wanted you to talk about it on the podcast because i had watched a, a you know a little blurb on youtube with that, that little piece on it and then so you get onto the team you hadn't played in a while. What was that feeling like about oh, being was, part of the team? It was pretty cool because I got some publicity, you know, local teacher, because I was teaching school, local teacher to play pitch for the Mavericks. And mm-hmm. so uh, my students came to the game. And and, uh, and so uh, it was, I was looking forward to it. I wasn't thinking, well, I'm going to make it back to the big leagues. Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking that at all. I was just thinking, this is summer job, and it beats the shit out of playing, uh, painting houses. Yeah, and so uh, that's what I was thinking, and so I, and it was fun. And I wasn't making diddly. I mean, Frank, I, I was making four hundred dollars a month, 
and all the beer I could drink at Peter's Inn, Frank Peter's thing. He, yeah. I had an unlimited beer. Yeah. Everybody and, who, who, who who didn't play for the uh, Mavericks went and play, worked for Frank, right? Yeah. I didn't work for him. I could just go in there and I, yeah. I already had a job. I was a teacher. <laughs> I was I mean, I was happy with my career. I just need something to do that summer. So I pitched, I pitched one game and did, I pitched the whole game. I pitched a complete game. But we lost, and I did terrible. I my arm started hurt about halfway through, mm-hmm. and then I pitched another game, lasted about an inning. So I'm thinking, okay, this experiment is over. I'm done. And I'm sitting on the bench, and Frank comes up to me on the bench. And he says, "Hey, I remember you, Cole. You used to be a good hitter. Get up there and pinch hit." Yeah. I hadn't taken any batting practice. I hadn't taken anything, and I get up there, and some big left hander is throwing, and. Mm-hmm. First pitch, I swung, I hit it off the top of the center field wall at uh, uh, Multnomah Stadium, mm-hmm. uh, Civic Stadium, I think it was called at the time. I got a double. We're behind 10 to nothing, but I've, I'm on second base with a double, and much like it happened back at, when I played SC, the pitcher turned around and picked me off behind 10 to nothing. You're not supposed to get picked off. And I come back <laughs> to the bench, and the assistant coach, who was Frank's coach at Oregon State, starts screaming and yelling at me, and I want to go, excuse me, sir, I'm a public school teacher. <laughs> can't be yelling at me. But then the next day, I was a designated hitter. Mm-hmm. And so I played for a week as a designated hitter. I was hitting 300. I was batting cleanup. Mm-hmm. I had a, a home run and a bunch of RBIs. And um, and then they got a call from Jim Bouton, wanted to make a comeback. And you're only allowed one player who's played higher experience. Yeah. And so Jim Bouton had won. He's the world's most valuable player in the World Series. Yeah, and ball he'd written, four. He'd written ball four. He was legendary. Mm-hmm. And so Frank, we were in Walla Walla. Frank came to my room and said, Sorry, we gotta let you go. Yeah. Wait a second, Frank. How can you let me go? I'm leading the team in hitting. <laughs> so, what? Talk a little bit about Frank and you know Frank's local here. You know, and he, you know, he coached for a couple of years um, for the Mavs. And and uh, what was it like playing under Frank at that time? Well, Frank was so unconventional. It was unbelievable. I mean, he just crazy stuff, and you know, no rules. You know. I think his only rule was don't get caught or whatever. And so he, he was, you know, he was colorful and, and uh, you know, as a bar owner, he, was, he had made a name for himself here in, in town as a, as a barkeep. And, mm-hmm. and so he was just, uh, he was crazy. And I knew him from before and I knew him around town and stuff. And so I, I you know, his flamboyant and, craziness was just entertaining to me and he he didn't bother me and he let me play he gave me the chance yeah he's the one who picked me to play on the team and and so i'm forever thankful to that because when i was done or actually when i was playing with him i thought well no matter what happens here you know remember i was a school teacher i could write an article about playing for the mavericks Mm -hmm. and so i did and I talked to one of the writers, uh, uh, Nick Bertram, uh, who was working for the Oregonian. He was covering the team. And I said, I'd, if I wrote an article, could I give it to you? What about getting it published? And he said, well, let, let me take a look at it. So mm-hmm. I wrote it and showed it to him. And they published it. And they put it on the top front page banner story picture of me looking like Charlie Manson and another picture of me in my Phillies uniform. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got such good positive feedback. It was the first thing I'd ever written or published. I hadn't thought about really being a writer at that point. And I got such positive feedback from that. And, I, and then I went back to school to teach and I, I started writing articles all over the place. And I was getting published. Everything I was writing was selling. And so I, I decided, oh, well, I'm going to try this full time. And I, so I quit like three months later teaching in mm-hmm. the middle of the year. Was My wife was not real happy about that because, you know, I had, she was going to school back to school. And, you know, so we, all of a sudden we didn't have health insurance and mm-hmm. the necessary ingredients of life. But I was being a writer. So yeah. that, that's what I wanted to do at that point. Yeah, and I, I was as I was doing some some research to kind of you know draw the mm-hmm. the, the whole baseball career at, at, to a conclusion. Um, you, you had mentioned this in an article uh, that 
when you discuss your baseball career, then transitioning into your 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 writing career, you you chose a specific movie scene to kind of Whoa. you know talk to kind of paint the picture of um of your of you as mm-hmm. an individual, and it, it, you said I chose the scene from Field of Dreams where Ray Kinsella played by Kevin Costner goes out in search of Dar- Dr. Archibald Moonlight Graham, whose professional baseball career lasted just one day. Uh, Kinsella asked Graham what it was like to get so close to your dreams and not make it um, is something most people would think is a tragedy. And Graham responds that it would be only have been a bigger tragedy if you'd only been a doctor for a day. Um, Which I saw that when I saw it in the theater. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, that, that's me. I mean, because... What I tell people often about my, I played one game and then I was got sucker punched on the street and that was mm-hmm. it. I never played again in the big leagues. And uh, I mean, oh, what a shame, what a tragedy. But if that had not have happened, mm-hmm. I would have never become a writer. I'm sure I would have had a, you know, big league career. I was, you know, might not have made the Hall of Fame or anything, but I would have had a decent career. All the guys that came up with who mm-hmm. I was ahead of them they went on to do good things and so uh but i i never ever moaned and actually i'm more lately as i get really old i think oh jesus i wish i'd had a chance but Mm -hmm. but i've been so consumed first with my teaching career and then for the last 40 years with my writing career uh, all i think about is writing Mm -hmm. i don't think about oh god if i hadn't have if I'd stayed in my room and read a book instead of going to a bar, this wouldn't have happened. And so, uh, yeah, it's too bad I didn't get to live out that dream. But um, uh, on the other hand, my life turned out great. And yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I'm far more uh, proud of my writing career than my baseball career. Mm-hmm. Baseball career, uh, I was a, f- a genetic freak. I mean, I could throw hard. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, that was, I worked at it, but, you know, it wouldn't have done any good if I wasn't born with a good arm or yeah. a, a good hand-eye coordination. But writing, I worked on it. I worked, I worked on it today, every mm-hmm. day. And it's, I'm doing it with my brain. And to me, that's just, uh, I feel that my, well, there's an old Chinese proverb that says to Achieve immortality. You have to do uh, one of. You have to do three things: have a child, plant a tree, and write a book. Hmm. I've done all three. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So, so I don't know if I, that means immortality, but my books will always be in the library, and so, and I'll always have my baseball card. They still send them to me in the mail. Yeah. I get way more baseball autograph requests than I do uh, writing requests, and, and yet. I, I think I'm major league uh, writer, but not. <laughs> you talked about that in one of your your interviews, and you said that I think it was like 2004, maybe a little bit later. You'd said that you know you had estimated at that time that you had gotten some three thousand or four thousand requests to have cards signed, and you know some people would send you a picture or a postcard it would be the essentially the cover of one of your later books counting who and you know it ask you to sign this and then you'd say you take the card you sign it you put it in and you fold it up and say read the book or something yeah, and you no never hear, they you never, never write back. me back never and i've done it like you say three thousand times i mean yeah it, baseball card collecting is a freaky phenomenon there's people out there and there's a book that lists the address of every guy who mm-hmm. ever played in the big leagues so I'm in the book because you yeah. can't. I told. I'm gonna look you. Let me look at card up. See what the value is currently going on Amazon. <laughs> oh, I'm. It, well, it's two forty if it's not signed, and it's two dollars if it's signed. You <laughs> know, know, Amazon has great deals. Yeah. So uh, you know, I get. I got a card today in the mail. I mean, I, it's just weird. They said if 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 I get the amount of cards that I do. I can only imagine what Cal Ripken mm-hmm. gets. I mean, you know, it's I played insane. one game. He played, you know, zillions. So I can get, you could get your card right now with Dick Thainan uh, autograph for thirty nine eighty nine. Oh, what a ripoff. For both of you. <laughs> I'll give it to you for free. So there's another one of you for $18. There's Don another Money. One. There's another one that's signed by both of you. Yeah. Um, 
for nineteen ninety four. Then there's like another one of you and Don Money for seven dollars and seventy five cents. I think the lowest I'm seeing on here is a dollar ten. <laughs> What's the difference between that and the one that costs twenty bucks or thirty bucks, whatever it is? <laughs> it's not autographed. No, well, yeah, it's got you, Don Money on. Well, it. You buy it and I'll autograph it for you. It's <laughs> ridiculous. It's so stupid. It can't be any more stupid. Yesterday, up for my. Uh, uh, grandson who's a mu- musical freak I'm going to get him for Christmas I'm getting him uh, tickets to the Rolling Stones up in Seattle oh, so wow. I went online and the t- tickets expensive. first tickets price they start at $20,000 a ticket oh my gosh it must be some skybox or something or Mick Jagger comes back and gives you a back rub or something <laughs> the um, uh, Keith Richard I, shows you how he doesn't die yeah right <laughs> you might die before it might yeah. and so uh, I'll I'm gonna be more down in the $300 range but yeah uh, so so you so now you're an acclaimed author you know you've written books such as Idle Time Goat Brothers Counting Coup no Ordinary Joes, and Southern League. Um, you know, I want to take, you know, I was listening to um, one of uh, your, your introduction, well, one of your speeches, and you talked about um, uh, No Ordinary Joes. You talked about one of the gentlemen that was in that in that book that you wrote about was from uh, Medford, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he was. That's how I came across the story. Yeah, he was a submariner. He's a submariner. And he got captured. They, the submarine got sunk, and but they miraculously escaped, got captured by the Japanese, and nobody knew they had been. Um, uh, they everybody they were listed lost at sea. So mm-hmm. his wife, a few months, she waited a couple of years, and then she went and married another guy. Yep. And then he comes back, and expect, the only thing that kept him alive in in prison camp. Prison camp was horrific. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and if you think you only like people who don't get captured, you're wrong. These guys were unbelievable and that spent three years in a Japanese prisoner camp. So he comes out and his wife is remarried. Yeah. And that's what kept him alive, was thinking about you know coming home to his sweetheart from Medford. So he goes 25 years, they go apart, and he goes to a store one day and he walks around the corner and there she is. And they had both were in bad marriages, and they fell back in love 25 mm-hmm. years later. And so I went to um, interview him back in Maryland. They'd moved to Maryland. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was 20 years later. They'd been married 20 years now. And the second day that I was there interviewing him, he's, and I was staying at his house, and the, he, his wife was there, and he stood up, and he dropped dead. He, mm-hmm. he dropped dead right in front of me. Yeah, and you uh, you said you later on say that you wrote the eulogy I for his wedding, the eulogy uh, for first funeral, and funeral, and uh, yeah, I became very involved with the family and mm-hmm. the whole thing. Are you still you still talk to the family to yeah. this day? Yeah, not regularly, but mm-hmm. you know, most of the um, you know county coup. I lived on the Indian reservation. I'm still in touch with people from there. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I wrote about my guys, my fraternity brothers from Cal. Yeah, I talk to them all the time. In fact, I just went to a reunion of those guys. Yeah, and then let's let's talk about Southern League. I know I brought a copy of it here. I'll, I'll admit I haven't read it yet, but I plan on yeah, sure, I plan sure, on reading sure. it. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it's kind of interesting because this book takes place. You write it as if it was taking place in nine. It did take place in 1964. You you base it on the first ever integrated team. And it was the Birmingham Barons. Now, this is uh, two years prior to you actually playing baseball for Make the it, Peaches. I, was, I played in the Southern League. In the so, Southern League, yeah. So I was in there. So I was familiar with all the, you know, that. And plus some of the guys that were there in the 64 with the team were there again in 66. So I played mm-hmm. against some of the guys. And so, uh, but it's really a book about... Uh, integration in Birmingham, Alabama, which was at the crucible of the civil rights yep. movement at that time. And it's some pretty ugly stuff that went on. Mm-hmm. And so it's about these guys trying to win win the pennant with it, with the backdrop of some of the worst yeah. uh, uh, race racial stuff you can imagine. Yeah, and, and you, um, you had mentioned that Part, you know, you hadn't really written about civil rights other than you had written a term paper in college yeah, I did. that got you interested in civil yeah. rights. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and and you even mentioned that even at the time you were in, I think you were in college, that you said even black players are unable to eat with white players when we played in the South. No, or was I that when the, the other no, team, when the I, Southern League? When, well, we didn't have any black players at Cal when I was there. But in the Southern League, sorry. But in the Southern League, we yeah. had, we had uh, uh, black players, and the, they could they had stayed in a different ho- uh, play, uh, hotel. They, mm-hmm. they stayed in boarding houses, run-down boarding houses. They couldn't eat in the same restaurants. And this was in 66, mm-hmm. two years after the Civil Rights Movement had been. Yeah. But it didn't change anything. And they... You know the blacks couldn't sit in the in the, the, the fans. They they had to sit in a special section way down the left field line that was called the coal bin, and it was it was ugly. Yeah, and, and it stuck with me. And so then, you know, forty years later, I wrote a book about it, but yeah. not about my experience there, but about this first ever integrated team. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then you know, we briefly let's touch a little bit briefly on County Coup because that 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 was a pretty popular book. But my understanding is is that so you you went and lived on the, the Crow the, Indian Crow Reservation, Indian Reservation. In Montana, Little Bighorn. Yeah, and you lived there for sixteen to eighteen months, yes. and you spent three years on the book. You know, it's a story on honor on uh, story on honor on the Little Bighorn, right? And um. You know, with this specifically, you said that you had written the first book, you, you the manuscript, you, you, you or the book part of it. You sent it in. Your you, you got a call back saying it was garbage, and yeah, you pretty com- much. You come after back after I spent three years yeah. on it. I mean, it's like getting a turn in a term paper to get a D minus on mm-hmm. it. This is way more than that, and plus they had given me a six figure advance. And and not only did they think it was garbage, they wanted their money back. Yeah, you know, I didn't. I'd already spent it. I had, I had a daughter in college, I had I had a house here in Portland. I was living mm-hmm. over in Montana. You know, I spent the money and yeah. and uh, or most of it anyway. And so they wanted it back, and I didn't have it. And so that was the low point of my career, any career. That's lower than when I got hurt in the big leagues. Yeah. Uh, because I worked hard on it, and it was truly a piece of crap. I didn't realize it at the mm-hmm. time. But then I started rewriting it, and I wrote 50 pages, and I changed it from third-person past tense to first-person present tense, and I mm-hmm. put myself in the story. Uh, uh, and it was not politically correct. It was, you know, I'm writing about Native Americans, and it was... Uh, but uh, I sh- showed it to... Two people here in Portland, the 50 pages, and they both loved it. And it was Arlene Snitzer, who had become a good friend, and another guy named Jerry Pratt, who was head of Meyer Memorial Trust, had been head of Fred Meyer's. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't do anything because I, I had started a, a, a nonprofit uh, teacher program, uh, training teachers on how to teach writing in the schools. And... Um, I didn't have time to work more in the book. And so Jerry Pratt went out to lunch and he asked me how many pages I'd written since the 50. And I said, none. And he went ape on me. And <laughs> and I said, well, Jerry, that's easy for you to say. You got millions of dollars. I don't have millions of dollars. Well, how much would it take for you to finish this book? Well, $35,000. And he said, so he reached in his pocket pulled out a checkbook, and he wrote me a check for $35,000 right on the spot. And, of course, first thing I thought of was I should have said $100,000. <laughs> yeah, I remember talking to you. But <laughs> you ended up giving that money back after Yeah, I didn't take it. I, yeah. I, But his having somebody believe in you to that extent uh, motivated me. So I started getting up at 5 o'clock and writing, and, mm-hmm. I, and I finished the book in about four months and took off and Next thing, you know, did great and got nominated, won ebook of the year, got nominated for a Pulitzer and been optioned as a movie four different times. Yeah. And jumping back on that, you, you talked about how Huey Lewis had approached you about making a movie out uh, of the he book. He optioned him. Yeah, he did. He, Huey and I became, we sat right there and we became partners and uh, he was, he wanted to produce the movie. And starring it, he was gonna. He wanted to act in it too. And uh, but I ended up pulling the plug on the deal because he had a partner that yeah. I had trouble working with. One of he had two partners. One who's 
she was an actress at the time, but now she's starting next month. She'll be the first lady of uh, California. She's married to Gavin Newsom. That mm-hmm. was one of his partners. And the second one was this woman who was driving me nuts, and I couldn't. She just, you know, you're the writer of the book. Get out of the way. And this is about people's lives. And I just, I got mad. And and uh, but she, so I pulled the plug on the deal. And then she's gone on to produce two TV series since then. One mm-hmm. was called Breaking Bad. Yeah. And the other was called House of Cards. Oh, jeez. So yeah. I guess I really messed her career up. <laughs> yeah, don't mess with Larry. You'll never work in Hollywood again. And then, uh, so then it got re-optioned again, but this time by Tim Boyle? Yeah, Tim Columbus Boyle Sports. of uh, Columbus Sportswear put up a bunch of money to do it. So where do we... More than once. He did it more than once. Where does it stand right now with the uh, potential of any movie? Oh, I'm uh, I'm supposed to be doing a treatment of it now for some big... Uh, producer in LA and uh, it's been optioned four times which is good because I get paid each time yeah but it get I get paid a lot more if they actually made a movie out of it and so uh, uh, but you know I it's happened with a couple of my other books they've been optioned and I've, I've been down the road so many times with Hollywood oh you can mm-hmm. make a million dollars doing this movie and it never happens I'm sort of jaded yeah and like I'm like the, the thing that I'm supposed to do a treatment for the Hollywood producer guy and he's done some blockbuster movie a couple of them I can't remember what they are now but uh, I just I don't know <laughs> I don't have any faith in it anymore but maybe it'll come up yeah. and who knows well there's a couple funny stories I want to get to that I uh, right. that I was uh, found out about you uh, throughout, uh, you know, so we're doing this research before we get to MLB to PDX. Yeah. Um, so one of them was at the age of 37, you were a department store Santa. Oh. And that, and, <laughs> and you, you said that the two Santas that were there already ended up going on strike. Yeah, they went out of strike. And then you were the scab I, Santa. I was the only one left, and I was the scab Santa because I didn't go out on strike. And they were both alcoholics, and we only had one beard between us. And every time I put on that beard, it about knocked me over from the stench. Kids would crawl on my lap, and they go, oh, Santa, your breath stinks. And it was, I did it. I was only supposed to do it for a day because a buddy of mine had the photo exhibit. At, this was at the... Uh, uh, Myron Frank at Lloyd Center, and so, <laughs> and uh, so the kids would crawl up. But uh, I ended up doing the whole Christmas, like three weeks of it. I was the only Santa, you know. And I wrote a story about it, but uh, that wasn't. Yeah, that was pretty bad. And then the um... talk about pressure on a job. If you're Santa, you got to be on all the time because yeah. you can't. A kid crawls on your lap. You can't you go like, oh yeah. god, Santa, you smell like. Booze. Yeah, I'm not into this right now. Could you come back later? <laughs> and then the uh, the other funny story that I I was just laughing hysterically is the time you got into your Nova. You drove your daughter back all the backwards all the way to school. You get pulled over by a police officer and he, he lets you go. Well, this is when I first started my writing career and I didn't have money. I was if I was poor as a baseball player, I was even poorer as a writer. And I had a Chevy Nova, a 1970 Chevy Nova, and it the transmission went out and the only gear that worked was reverse. And I had to get my daughter to school. And we'd missed the bus. And it was the, so I just backed out the driveway and I just kept going. And I drove seven miles across morning traffic of Portland. <laughs> and I'd come to busy, you know, across MLK and, and a bunch of other streets. And I would, you know, I'd look and then I'd go backwards and, and I'd go side streets for the most part. Sometimes I'd have to, you know, go across a busy street. And we get to her school and a police car pulls me over. He says, I've been following you for three blocks, but I could only take him for his word because I was, uh, and I just told him, I'm just, I'm dropping off my daughter and I'm driving straight backwards to Amco and getting the car fixed. And so I, uh, yeah, that wasn't my shining. (laughs) And I told that story, I read that story. And and in the thing that I wrote, I said, uh, I put, uh, Sarah's lunch into her Princess Leia uh, lunchbox, and off we went. Mm-hmm. And I read it one time, 
uh, and she, Sarah, who was now 30 years old, because she was in the first grade when this happened, mm-hmm. and she, I read it out loud, and at the end she raised her, she steps up and says, Dad, I never had a Princess Leia lunchbox. <laughs> she evidently didn't know about literary license. And you, you, But you end up selling the car, right? Yeah, some crazy guy comes to my door and pays me $400 that had just been sitting there gathering mildew <laughs> in my driveway for yeah. months. Excellent. So now let's uh, let's transition into uh, Major League Baseball, the Portland. I know that you know, having watched your city club speech from two thousand and three, you definitely have some reservations. Um, you know, with uh, you know Major League Baseball, you know, at that time, its attempt to come to Portland and and what it was and who was you know focusing in on it. Um, you know, I know you play a little bit of the devil's advocate on this one, uh, but you know, we'll, we'll, let's let's talk through it and you know, let's sure. let's, let's get your thoughts on well, it. Well, first of all, I hope like anything that it comes here. I mean, it'd be great for the community. It'd be it'd be fantastic, and uh, uh, I love to go to. I go up to see Mariner games mm-hmm. uh, a couple times a year. And so uh, I I hope that it happens. I hope. And from what I've, and all I know is what I read in the paper, basically. Uh, and when you're trying to read the Oregonian, you're not going to get much there. But it seems that this time around, as compared to, you know, 10 years ago or whenever yeah. it was, they have a much better team in place. Uh, 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 Craig Cheek, Mike Barrett, right. and the guy. And they, the, they're, guys. they're more organized. They're making a better thing. They've already got a location for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much better at, uh, financed and thought out and has some you know support. To it. They, uh, I know Russell Wilson's supposedly involved. I don't know what the heck good he would do, but uh, he's, you know, he's got, it's a, it, you know, he's Russell, got some main familiarity. Main familiarity. Him yeah. and his wife Sierra both individually, yeah. you know, sponsored it. You know, yeah. for, for so, the team. So, so, so to, uh, the bottom line is, I hope it happens. Yeah, I'm skeptical that it can. I, I'm not skeptical of the people that are trying to to uh, uh, put it together. They seem like they're doing a good job, mm-hmm. and they've got it this far. It's certainly farther than it was. You know. 15 years ago, whatever that was when they tried it before. and um, But there's some, here's the issues I have with it. Not that it's not good. Here's why I don't think it's going to happen. Or I, I feel that it's a dream. And But, you know, it takes dreamers to make things happen. And I, I became a writer when I, there's no way in the world I should have ever become a writer, but mm-hmm. I did. So I'll be, I would help them if I could. But the first thing about it that I worry about is, you know, I grew up in L.A. and I've lived and I've been in other major league places. I just don't think baseball is part of the fabric of this community. You go by uh, during the summer, you go by any park, and you don't see any kids out there playing. They're out playing soccer if they're doing anything. They, they can't get enough kids to play, uh, uh, ba- you know, uh, Babe Ruth League or mm-hmm. Little League. Uh, baseball is not popular here in this town. Kids don't grow up thinking about it. And I don't know if it's because of what the best thing that's happened in baseball in Oregon is Oregon State Beavers. I mean, the, yeah. their success is fantastic. Uh, but so it's just there's a, a when something becomes part of the fabric of the community, the Blazers are part of the fabric of the community, and so that's not to say that the, that the baseball team couldn't be. Mm-hmm. But I'm skeptical that I just don't think this is a good baseball town. Uh-huh. Well, I'll be, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit sure. on this, and and the reason why I want to play devil's advocate is, and, and I and I, I get I get your get your point, but I actually think it's quite the opposite. I think that you you have programs like um, you know Friends of Baseball. They're you know they they're doing a lot to help out um, inner city development of youth baseball. You know, I know the Diamond Project, that you know, they're putting proceeds to inner city youth baseball. I mean, you have you have program, even, you know, sponsor of the podcast, um, Portland Gear Store puts money towards inner city youth baseball. Uh, you know, you have these programs in place. And I, and I think another thing as a, you know, you know, we're both parents and I think a little bit, that it involves in this is, is that maybe it's gone away from 
you know, you talk about your dad and you talk about your dad and, and how much time he spent with you and, and he showed his, his love to you in a different way. And that's by doing things with you and, and being out there. And I think that society is growing to a point now where you, you know, maybe there's not a lot of, you know, parents that spend that time, you know, with their children doing these types of things, getting them out playing sports. I mean, I, I, you know, I try to get my children out to play sports a lot of times. So I, I feel like it's, it's, it's the, the non-parent interaction that they have. And it may not, it's more focused on electronics and stuff. So it's not, it's more, it's parenting is, I think, some ways gone towards the electronic age yeah, versus, which is not good, which is not good versus being out doing things, getting that, maybe that interaction that yeah. they get with development of being part of something bigger than themselves as a team. Well, when I grew up in, in Southern California, it was in the fifties, really kids, all the kids grew, uh, around me wanted to go out. If their dream was to be a big league baseball player, mm-hmm. that, that was the dream, not football, not basketball. Yeah. That was, and now I think it's they want to be a soccer player, they want to be a football player, they want to be a basketball. Baseball is fourth, and you talk about inner city projects. I think I, I think there's a lot of effort being put into uh, you know bringing baseball to inner city, but if you look at it, the inner cities are not supporting baseball nationally mm-hmm. and here in in Portland. I don't know if if these you know if you can field the team yeah. you know, on one of those in one of those places but you know if you brought major league baseball here to portland perhaps it would become part of the cultural milieu of the city in the same way that the the uh, uh, blazers did when harry glickman brought the blazers here back in 1970 mm-hmm. There was no, this wasn't a basketball town. Yeah. I mean, he did, pulled off a miracle in doing mm-hmm. that. Um, and so um, so that proves that it can be done. But there's other things working against that. One is the funding of this thing. And I don't know the in, intricate details of what the diamond, or the project now is, but you're going to need a ballpark. And that's yeah. going to be way expensive yeah and, and, and we've seen the drugs they've been released about yeah, what they, they want to do it looks beautiful yeah and, and uh in the place where they're doing it looks like a viable place yeah. you know uh their, their location that, that's farther along than they had it before yeah and so but it seems to me that you're going to have to get some um uh public money, taxpayer money to support this, to build a stadium, unless these guys are claiming they can do it on their own. But I know back then, and I'm not sure now, but to get that happen, to get private support, you're going to have to go to a Phil Knight, a Tim mm-hmm. Boyle, uh, uh, one, uh, somebody f- uh, from Intel or somebody yeah. that's going to have to put up big bucks. Well, they've already been hit those people up, and I guarantee those people are getting old, and they don't want to do it. I talked to Tim Boyle about this a couple of days ago. He has no interest in it, mm. even though he's a great sports fan, and he's so he, he and his mother gave a hundred million dollars to OHSU cancer research. Yeah, I mean they're they're givers. I mean, but I, I don't think um, if you look at it from a financial investment. It has to come from the heart because I don't think it's a guaranteed thing, especially now the economy crashing the way it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think everything that I'm reading between the tea leaves and and so on is is that they they do have that uh, back channel financial support. I'm not. I'm not sure where they're. I'm not sure where they're getting it. I don't have that insider knowledge. I don't. I don't. I, know one of the either. other things. I hope that, they do. One of the other things we do. They do have, and and I have done. We've done an episode on this. Is that Senate Bill Five which was passed back in the early 2000s as a part of this 2003 push to get the Montreal Expos, yeah. who obviously clearly went to um, Washington. Washington. But, you know, that, you know, as Mike Barrett would say, you I mean, that's a drop tax. I mean, that's that's the EA. You're getting some money, but it has to be paid back. And it's being paid back by the person that works for you know the team making $50,000 or more. So they're, they're, they're taxing that financial gain that that person is getting to come back to pay for those things so yeah you you know this this stadium you know you'd mentioned that 
I think Seattle Stadium was like five hundred million dollars or whatever. Plus, I mean, this this stadium with the renderings that they have is probably going to well exceed that. So, you know, and it's not the capacity is only going to be like thirty two, thirty four thousand. Yeah, but Cleveland has that capacity, and they do. Yeah. If they filled it every time, but that's the other concern. I'm thinking the novelty when they first come here, people will would go and they buy tickets and they go see it. Mm-hmm. And because they just want to see a big league uh, baseball, yeah. But if they don't win, there it's that novelty is going to wear off pretty soon, and they won't continue to support it over a long period. But you of time. have the diehard fans of other teams that will come, like the New York Yankee fans, the Boston Red Sox fans. I mean, you probably you know if you get into the AL, mm. you're going to have that rivalry with Seattle. Yeah. So you're going to have Seattle fans that are going to travel down to Portland. Yeah, you know, Portland fans traveling up to Seattle. Well, I don't think that would event. be a big enough. I don't think that many uh, Seattle fans would come here to make a financial impact. One of the things they talk about is how uh, if you brought a new team in here, it, the financial impact would be huge. Mm-hmm. But I, I, the research that I've well, I just read research, but there's been done. There's been a yeah. lot of studies of this. It just redistributes the money. Mm-hmm. In other words, instead of people going to a movie and out to dinner. They go to a ball game, so it's not bringing yeah. new money in here. It's just taking money away from other things and putting it into the to the baseball yeah, thing. And I can see and that. that. And, and, but I, I can do, that's fine. But they're not. I don't think it's the the population in Oregon and uh, Southwest Washington is a uh, uh, it's small, and so you can. You know, how many times is somebody from Bend going to come mm-hmm. over here to go to a game? Twice a year, maybe? Uh, uh, so it doesn't have, there's not the uh, metropolis around that Seattle has or any of the big league teams has. It probably has a smaller base to draw from. I mean, you got Beaverton, you got Gresham, mm-hmm. you got, you know. You got all the suburb areas. Yeah, that but, yeah. but uh, still, the whole thing together is what's the population, the greater population of uh, Portland is like a million or something. Yeah. I, I don't know sure exactly, but so I think it's against all odds is is what I think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but conversely, I hope these guys don't give up. And I hope they do. They work at it, and I hope they prove me wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'll and I'll be there opening day when they do it. If I'm still around, I hope they can do it fast. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I uh, uh, you know, they're so much more advanced than they were 15 years ago, and so much better uh, thought out, mm-hmm. uh, or at least from what I gather in the. The, the guy that was running the program back in 2003 wasn't even a baseball fan. Yeah. He didn't even like baseball. So that kind of, mm-hmm. that, that's not going to work. And so, yeah. so let's see. I, I just, I'm just being pragmatic here mm-hmm. is, is, you know, the, so the fabric of the community is not steeped in baseball. Yeah. But it could get there. It could it get could, there. It could get there. And let me but, throw, they, but they couldn't even keep a uh, AAA team here. The Beavers left, and so they good couldn't. point. But let me. Th- you were on the Portland Mavericks, and what yeah. did the what did the Portland Mavericks what did the Portland Mavericks do specifically for 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 youth baseball? Oh, they had clinics. It? They had clinics. And they stuff. had the little Mavericks. Yeah, they, they had, had that, and that's. I mean, you could do that with or without a team. I mean, uh, yeah, you uh, could. And I hope. Um, but, you, but, but every major league team has a community outreach that they do, mm-hmm. and the players go out and do X amount of uh, clinics that's in their contract yeah. that they have to do. But I, uh, I, I, I think the, the the I don't know if the major league baseball, uh, you know, whether it be the Oakland A's or the commissioner, if they see Portland as a viable enough mm-hmm. uh, place to. I don't know what they're competing well, with. I think they do because I don't think that we would, you know, yeah. the the Diamond Project would be at this point. What are other their, cities that at. would be in contention? I think the other cities Vegas? that are in contention is Nashville, Vegas, um, you know, I think even Montreal is is one. Yeah, they, um, they tried but, that it didn't work. But, you know, the I did think the Commissioner of Baseball did say that Portland is up high on the list for an expansion team. Um, if if they were to give us, and well, I know expansion team, they they might as well drop that yeah. idea because that's not going to happen. But it is, it, you know, last I heard, you know, was that 
the potential, more and more potential for Tampa Bay. Yeah, Tampa Bay's, yeah, and Miami's always sort of yeah. a bit weird. But uh, I'd like to see the A's. A's actually had a good team. They do year. have a good team, yeah. They got some good players. They were like Plus, 90 they something got, games. Now they got this Heisman Trophy winners going to be playing with yeah. them. Uh, so it could be exciting to have. I saw them play a game against the Mariners mm-hmm. in the uh, last game of the season up in uh, uh, at Safeco. And, they got some players. Yeah, they got some really good young talent. There. Yeah, they really do. So I would love if they would come here. But I feel, in summary, I feel sorry for Oakland. I mean, they're losing mm-hmm. the Warriors. They're going to San Francisco. The, the they're Raiders, losing the Raiders to go to Raiders Vegas. They're going to Vegas. And now if they lose the, the A's. They got nothing. They got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> they got some nice houses up in the hills. But, um, but uh, yeah. it, it was, Oakland's always been sort of a brunt of everybody's joke from the Bay Area, having lived mm-hmm. down there. You always yeah. kind of t- turn down your nose at Oakland. But I, I don't want to be a, a naysayer. I'm just trying to be a, 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 just a voice of, Voice of reason, Caution. yeah. Caution. I don't know if it's reason. I want to be wrong, yeah, uh, because uh, I love baseball. I mean, mm-hmm. baseball is it defined who I was for a lot of yeah. my life. I mean, and so uh, I would. It would be <laughs> dog chasing around the cat. Uh, <laughs> they love each other. Yeah. They so let me, let me, let's, yeah. let's. You know, I mean, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you letting me kind of go a little bit back and forth here with you um, on, you know, the potential of baseball. You know, again, I wanted to do my prep work, you know, on on this. You've done more research than anybody who's ever interviewed. And uh, well, I appreciate that. Um, And so I want to I want to ask you this one final question. Baseball comes to Portland. Are you okay? Would you feel good if they chose the Mavericks as a name? Oh, uh, sh- sure. I haven't thought about that. Let me give you a quick little rundown on naming. I created a book festival here in Portland called the Wordstock. Mm-hmm. Got taken over by Literary Arts. They came to me and said, "We're gonna. T- we want to change the name." I have nothing to do with it anymore. But they at least ran it by me. They changed it to the Portland Book Festival. Mm-hmm. And asked me what I thought of it. I said, well, when I first thought of the idea, I called it the Portland Book Festival, and I dropped it because I thought it was the most boring name ever. Mavericks is not a, a boring a name. I don't know if outside of Portland, I mean, Mavericks means something to the people here in Portland, and it has a tradition, and I would be honored if they did it. I mean, having just been a small part of the Ma- Maverick legend here, I mean, playing, so... I hope that that would be. Mm-hmm. I don't. I saw a couple other names that were being bandied about. Uh, do you know what they the, are? The Steelheads. No. The, the Swiss. No. Um, the Portland Pines. Uh, no. I'm not so, you no, know, so no. sure on that one. There's also the Californians. No. <laughs> um, I think there's the Mud Dogs or no River Rats is another one. There, no, there's the Sacramento River Rats has already exists. Yeah. they can't take that one. I, I think they. I think they the should Mud go Hens in Toledo. So I think they should go with the Mavericks personally. Well, it's a more. Yeah, I would take the Mavericks. I would think it was good. And Portland, uh, aside from the Portland Mavericks baseball thing, Portland sees itself of a bit of a Maverick community. I yeah. mean, we're. We're out here on the far edge, and and uh, we you know keep Portland weird, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so I think internally we think of ourselves as sort of yeah we're going against the the, the grain here. So I I would yeah that's my vote. Excellent. Well, I never uh, thought of it until this second, but uh, it works for me. Excellent. Well, you know, I appreciate you, uh, you you coming on the podcast. I appreciate you spending all the time that you have um, with with David and I um, talking about you know your history and, and and you as an individual, and then you know moving into uh, the potential of Major League Baseball uh, to Portland and, and providing your input. So, thank you, sir, for yeah. uh, coming on. Yeah. Any yeah. any last thoughts? No, I mean I go Mavericks. <laughs> yeah, I hope it happens. And I, I, the powers that be that are working on this thing, they've thought about everything that I just said. Uh, you know about the uh, possibilities of why it won't work. They've thought about all that, yeah. and it didn't stop them, and they're still going. 
So more power to them. Yeah, and that's why you know that's why we're doing this podcast. You know, David and I. You know, part of it is is we really really want uh, Major League Baseball to come to Portland. And you know, again, you know, just pitching this out there, we we hope to be the official podcast of the baseball team when they do come. Oh, that'd be cool. So that's yeah. that's kind of what we're looking at. Yeah, uh, be, doing. Yeah, you're ahead so, of the game here. So yeah. okay, that gives me another reason to pull for it. So <laughs> yeah, so really, I'll, I'll be there opening day. I don't know if I could get tickets, but. Uh, uh, Tim Boyle will get me tickets. All right. I called him up to get me tickets to a Mariner game because he, <laughs> the pre, the president of the Mariners, is on his board, and so okay. So he calls me back like an hour later. He's got me six tickets. They were the first row, right next to the uh, uh, Mariners dugout. Wow. Very first row. You could touch the players. So I, I took my grandsons and I told him, "Bring your binoculars. We got bad seats. We're way up." <laughs> you were in and out of And they, we kept going down, 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 down to the you know the usher taking us down there to our good seats. And mm-hmm. so I became a hero with my grandsons because I got nice. a first row. All right. Well, thank you so much, yeah. uh, Larry. Right. I appreciate your time. Yeah. And this will do it for this episode. Right. This will do it for our third yeah. ep- uh, interview with uh, Mr. Larry Colton here. So thank you once again, sir. And uh, as always, I'm Ben. And uh, Larry, our special guest, thanks yeah. for coming. Oh, you have my a, pleasure. You have a great day and uh, okay. peace out. All right.